Welcome to another episode of On the Ballot with Ballotpedia. I'm your host, Victoria Rose, and thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm joined by political analyst Richard Winger, founder and editor of Ballot Access News, which covers developments in ballot access law and the latest action in the minor political party scene. He's a lifelong advocate for minor political parties, having testified in court cases concerning ballot access across the country. He has been published in the Wall Street Journal, Journal of Election Law, American Review of Politics, and other publications. He has appeared as a commentator on ballot access on NBC, ABC, CNN, and NPR. A lifelong Californian, Winger graduated from the University of California, Berkeley, as a political science major in 1966 and attended graduate school in political science at UCLA. Joining me now is Richard Winger. Richard, thanks again for coming on the podcast. We're excited to have you. I really appreciate being here, and I also really appreciate that Ballopedia just exists. Yeah, thank you. To begin, you studied politics at UC Berkeley and UCLA. Was there something in your studies or early professional career that sparked your interest in ballot access? What really got me interested was my intense desire to analyze election returns for third parties. There weren't many third parties in the early 60s. There were only three nationally organized third parties that even tried to get on ballots, and they were all three very obscure and little noticed. It was the Prohibition Party, the Socialist Labor Party, and the Socialist Workers Party. And yet, when they could get on the ballot, they got a a lot of votes sometimes, which piqued my curiosity. So were were you looking at returns nationally, not just in California? Oh, right. The whole country. Yeah. There were no third parties on the ballot in California uh, after 1964 when the Prohibition Party went off the ballot. And I thought, and and those two Marxist parties, they'd never been on, at least not in 60 years in the case of the Socialist Labor Party. So I, I wondered how come these parties were on the ballot in some states, but not others. So that's when I realized, well, each state has its own ballot access law and they they vary hugely. So then I got so interested in the ballot access laws and their history that I never stopped being interested in that. And why do you think ballot access is so important? Well, if the ballot access laws are made draconian enough, what we have in this country is a system in which two privileged parties, the Democratic and Republican parties, can be insulated from any further competition. In this country, we supposedly believe in free competition. And yet, among established democracies, it's ironic that we're almost at the bottom of the list when it comes to allowing free competitions among political parties. I'm curious for your take on how ballot access has developed in your long career covering it. You launched Ballot Access News in 1985, and you helped found the Coalition on Free and Open Elections that same year. So that's almost 40 years ago. How has ballot access changed during your long career covering it? It's mostly improved since 1985 until the present day. In fact, if you look at the percentage of votes that a party has to poll to stay in the ballot, Back in 1976, the median state had a a 5% vote test. Now it's 2%. So that's made a huge difference. There's more states where an ordinary, reasonably successful third party has a chance to stay in the ballot and therefore doesn't need to repetition all the time. Unfortunately, we've gone backwards in some states, including 
so sadly, California and Washington state, by adopting the top two system, those two states now keep third parties off the general election ballot almost entirely. And then also New York made ballot access much worse in 2020. That's a big setback too. And how about on the flip side? What states have notably become easier over the last 40 years? You want to limit it to just four years? That's okay. No, 40 years. Oh, 40. Good. (laughs) Maryland used to be just horrible. And we really, really improved Maryland. And also Florida has still got problems, but it's so much better than it used to be. When you say improve, you mean the percent of signatures required, or is it also dealing with like filing fees and other regulations to get on the ballot? Florida used to require 3% of the registered voters to sign a petition for a minor party or independent candidate to be in the ballot for any office except president. President was 1%. Even that was tough. But in 1998, the voters of Florida passed a constitutional amendment that wipes out mandatory petitioning for all office except independent candidates for president. So now there's no petitions in Florida, but there are giant filing fees. The filing fee for U.S. House is over $10,000. Still aren't very many minor party candidates on the ballot in Florida, but there's a lot more than, than it used to be. There was a complete absence of minor parties on the ballot in Florida, setting aside president, all the way from 1930 to um, 1974. And even after that, there were only two successful third-party petitions under that old regime. Is there one state that historically has seen the most minor parties get on the ballot? Well, if you're including independent candidates and you're talking about which states tend to have crowded ballots, (laughs) Tennessee is classic. In Tennessee, an independent candidate only needs 25 signatures and no filing fee. Tennessee has lots of independent candidates, except for president, it's 275. Another state with crowded ballots is New Jersey, because the statewide minor party and independent petition is only 800 signatures. And for district office, it's only 100. So those two states, Tennessee and New Jersey, invariably have the most minor party and independent candidates in the ballot, especially for Congress. Very interesting. As I mentioned at the top, you have testified in a couple different court cases over the years involving ballot access. How did your involvement in those cases come about? The first court case I testified in was in my own state. That was a lawsuit filed in 1973. Vincent Hallen, I don't know if you've, you've probably never heard of Vincent Hallen because you're so young. <laughs> Sorry, no. Very famous radical attorney in San Francisco. And the minor parties of California persuaded him to file a lawsuit against the very strict California ballot access laws. But he he was a grand old man. He wasn't willing to actually write the briefs. <laughs> so I just wrote them myself. And I hadn't any training at all, but I just got copies of briefs from other similar cases. And I just got into it. What have some of the outcomes been of those cases that you've been involved with? They aren't all ballot access. I testified in court in New York City in a Green Party case that we won the the point that voters had a right to register into an unqualified party if it was active. What's my favorite? That's, <laughs> it'll take me a second, but this is a good question. Georgia has by far the worst ballot access law in the country, and I hope we'll have time to get into that. Nevertheless, we did make it a significant improvement in Georgia in the, in the early 80s. So I, I, I guess I'll pick out that case. The upshot is the Libertarian Party of Georgia is safely in the ballot in Georgia for all the statewide offices. It needs no petitions. 
All they have to do is keep getting about 2% of the vote every two years for one of the statewide offices. And they always do. So you always see libertarians in the ballot for all the statewide offices. But the law is so insane. For district office, the libertarians are not on the ballot. And if they want to be on for U.S. House, and they so badly wanted to be on last year against Marjorie Taylor Greene, but the trouble is you need about 27,000 signatures, and we have a lawsuit pending against this case. We've had, we had affidavits from 20 people who made serious attempts. No third party has been able to overcome this law since it was passed in 1943. That's a terrible record. I want to talk about Georgia badly, even if you don't ask. Let's get into it. So it's still on the books and it's being challenged right now. Yeah, we won in the U.S. District Court, and then the 11th Circuit reversed it. And I must say, we were very unlucky in the panel. One of them was a former Attorney General of Alabama, and one of them was a former Solicitor General of Georgia. Those two judges have never ruled against the state in an election law case of any kind. But we still have a chance. The equal protection argument was not adjudicated earlier. So we're going back to the U.S. District Court and working on on that. If the founding fathers knew that someday there would be a state where you had to be a Republican or Democrat to run for U.S. House, which is in reality, that's the way it is, they'd be shocked because they wanted the U.S. House to be the most democratic branch of the federal government. And yet you have to be a member of one of two organizations or you can't run. And has there been any effort to lobby? I mean, I know Georgia is a Republican trifecta, meaning Republicans control the legislature and the governorship. Has there been any effort to lobby the legislature to change the law? Many, many, many times over the last 30 years. For a while, the bills, it would pass one house, but not the other. And then the opposite. Then it would pass the other house. Switching gears here, I cover ballot measures here at Ballotpedia. And on my team, we've seen an uptick in the number of measures related to ranked choice voting, top four, top five primaries, and approval voting. So my question is, how do you see these electoral changes impacting ballot access? The people who are sponsoring top four and top five have been oblivious to the harm that they're doing. Every single initiative for a top four or a top five ballot measure fails to recognize that when parties don't have nominees, third parties can no longer stay in the ballot by polling a certain share of the vote for one of their nominees. So they get knocked off the ballot. And the people who sponsor these things, they will not even acknowledge this point. You can't communicate with them. Top four, top five is pretty good for minor parties and legislative races, but the evidence shows top four and top five, even though they sound generous, will keep all third party and independent candidates off the ballot for governor and senator. You also noted that it didn't work out as planned within the Alaska elections this past year. Well, Alaska's kind of funny. Everybody claps and celebrates it. But what happened in Alaska? All the incumbents were reelected. <laughs> well, what happened in the country in 2022 in general? All the incumbents were reelected. For governor, only one incumbent governor was defeated. And for Senate, this is the first, 2020 is the first election year in history that not a single incumbent U.S. senator lost. So I'm not mad at the Alaska system. And I admit it's quite good for minor parties and legislative races, but it does keep libertarians and other third parties off the ballot for governor and senator, which it did this time. Under the old system, there would have been libertarians on the November ballot for those offices. Let's talk more about ballot access news. How do you go about finding your stories that you post and identifying different trends that you're covering? Well, it depends on 
where we are in the cycle. In election years, there's a lot more lawsuits pending. There's a wonderful service called Pacer. Have you ever heard of Pacer? Yes, yeah. Good. Well, it costs money, but anybody mm-hmm. like me can look at any federal court case and see all the filings. That's great. In the odd years, like now, the big thing is bills in the legislature. And I know Ballotpedia is tracking election law bills. We actually just launched a election legislation tracking tool that does list all the bills and categorizes them. And our readers and listeners can go and sort through their state's election bills. This is something we launched in July. Speaking of laws, I know a lot of state legislatures have just come back into session. Are there any particular laws that have been introduced so far that you're keeping an eye on? Well, it's very depressing. I may be missing some things, but so far the only ballot access bills I know about are bills to make things worse. (laughs) <laughs> There's bills in New Hampshire and Texas to increase the candidate filing fees. And and the uh, the New Hampshire bill, is, I think it raises it from $100 to $10,000. You've also covered in some of your recent reporting certain successes of minor party candidates in the midterm elections. Could you speak to some of those? Well, every year we have at least 20 minor party or independent candidates get elected to the legislature. I was quite surprised to see that six Alaska independents were elected to the state legislature. I also saw in your reporting that there were several state legislative candidates that won historic amount of the vote this cycle, even though they didn't win the office. That's true. In 2002, I put up a chart showing what's the biggest percentage for a minor party candidate for state legislature since World War II. So every once in a while, another state, somebody exceeds the record that I had figured out 20 years ago. So that's like West Virginia, a party organized only in West Virginia called Americans Coming Together got 39%. That was a record for West Virginia, which hasn't elected a third party or independent legislator since 1906. It's been a while. My final question for you is what would be your sales pitch to an everyday American who might not follow ballot access for why they should start paying attention? Voters are supposed to be the boss in this country. And if the government can tell the voters who they can and can't vote for, then the voters are no longer the boss. And we see very sad examples around the world where even candidates and parties that could potentially win are kept off the ballot. This has happened in Russia repeatedly, and it happens in Iran. And it's not enough that people are allowed to vote. We have to protect the right of voters to to have a free choice of whom to vote for. I mean, even dictatorships used to run one-party elections. So I just wish that people would pay more attention to the problem that we don't have enough candidates to vote for in some states. In fact, in as Ballotpedia keeps track of, almost one-third of state legislative elections in this country only have one candidate on the ballot. Races could definitely be more competitive with more candidates. Well, I just want to thank you for your time and sharing your expertise with us today. I found this conversation so fascinating. Thank you for your time. And we'll be sure to link your website, Ballot Access News, in our show notes so our listeners can check out more of what you cover. Thank you very much for having me. 